Welcome to Season 4 of the Unscripted Podcast, a podcast by medical students about living and learning at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine. On the show, we host a variety of discussions such as navigating the preclinical and clinical years, exploring humanism in medicine, and developing our physician identities outside of the textbook. Check out the show notes or our website for more information, helpful links, resources, and more. Please connect with us via email or on Twitter at unscripted underscore med. We'd love to hear from you, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome again to the Unscripted Medicine Podcast. My name is Matthew, and today I am joined again by Dr. Brian Elliott. On today's podcast, we're going to do a deep dive into the history of the cadaver lab. If you're interested in medical history, be sure to check out Dr. Elliott's book, White Coat Ways. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Uh, Brian, thank you again for joining us. I'm really excited to talk a little bit more today about more medical history. Um, especially today, we're going to talk about a subject that is very important to medical school, um, in my opinion, and that is cadaver labs and how we learn from cadaver labs. And I feel like thinking about medical school, that's one of the first things you think about, or maybe even one of the first things that family members will ask about is, oh my gosh, you're starting medical school. How was it in the cadaver lab? So I think uh interesting start to this. Maybe let's just chat about our experiences in the cadaver lab. It can be different from person to person. And I think it's important to discuss those feelings when you first enter that room and meet your quote unquote first patient. Yeah. And, and thanks for having me again, by the way. I enjoyed it so much last time and happy to be back and happy to talk about history here. Yeah. I remember my first experience and it is that course that everyone thinks about in medical school. I mean, this is the course where you're actually seeing a real patient. And mine was a little bit different because I actually had cadaver dissection in undergrad. So I had an experience even before medical school. And there's really just nothing like that first class when you get in the lab and you're like, wow, this is real, you know, and the the gravity really hits you. I don't know what your thoughts are. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I remember during our orientation for medical school was the first time that I was down in the cadaver lab and we didn't do really any dissecting. We just kind of stood around down there and our course director talked about what the um, course would look like for us. But I remember being in this room surrounded by my classmates, a course director, and then outnumbered by all of these cadavers covered in white sheets around me. And I thought that I would be able to handle it pretty well. And I think I was able to on the outside, like I didn't pass out or anything, but it really did kind of uh, not mess with my head, but it gave me these feelings of just like, wow, these are all people that I'm surrounded by. And I'm, of course, eternally grateful for their contribution to our education. But I still had feelings of fear, I think, going into it. Um, I was scared to start dissection because... I didn't know what it would feel like to um, begin learning from an actual human body. I think that was really the first feeling that stuck out to me. And I was really surprised that I started to feel that way. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally get that. And I still remember that first time that we had to cut into the cadaver and start exploring. And we were all like, well, you know, everyone pauses and you're like, oh, wow, this is uh, actually happening. Yeah. And I think that what's fascinating is 
the change that happens throughout the course. And I don't know how your experience was, what was, but ours spans over months. The anatomy lab course takes a long time. And at the beginning, that gravity really hits you. And then over time, it does start to erode a little bit because you're so obsessed with memorizing all these structures, doing all the things that you have to do in the lab, while also having the time to study outside of the lab to then work on the tests. Oh, is this going to be on the test? And you're less focused on this person and you're more focused on each tiny little structure. And it's almost a little symbolic of medicine overall of a little bit, maybe too much of a good thing that then chips away at some of the humanism of it. It's a lot to take in. And I think nowadays there's a lot of discussions going on now about the significance of dissections and the utility of it to medical school. But before we dive into that, I think it's important to look a little bit at the history of the cadaver lab and where it all came from and how it got to where it is today. So let's just go ahead and start at the very beginning. Like what when when was the first time we as doctors or at the time, what would have been known as doctors started using cadavers to study? Yeah, yeah. And and just to put the whole story in, in some context here and, and why it's so important is that we're again today talking about maybe discontinuing a cadaver lab and, and talking about maybe taking that part of anatomy away or at the very least decreasing it substantially. And well, they did that way back then and it didn't work out so well. So we'll talk about that. Um, so anatomy lab was really first born in around 300 BCE. And there were two big anatomists back then, Herophilus and Aristotelus. And my book mostly focuses on Herophilus, who is known as the father of anatomy. And he was a guy who worked in Alexandria. Alexandria was a, a part of Rome overall, a part of the, the Roman Empire, but it was a little more freeform. It was kind of like Vegas. You know, what happens in Alexandria stays in Alexandria. <laughs> so because of those less strict rules, they were able to do things that were going against the grain of some of the more contemporary Roman ideals. One of those was cadaveric dissection. So Herophilus was able to dissect human cadavers directly there, which was something that really hadn't been done much before. Prior to Herophilus's work, most things were founded on dissections of animals. And Aristotle actually was a, a huge dissectionist who had come up with his own theories of anatomical structures and some of the physiology behind them. One of the things that Aristotle is most famous for is the pneuma theory, that arteries and veins are filled with air. And it actually doesn't sound that crazy when you think about what he saw, because what he saw was cutting open animals and that muscular layer in the arteries actually contracts post-mortem. So then it pushes out all the blood and really all that's left in there is, is the air that, that he saw. So it actually wasn't that, that crazy of a theory, but when Herophilus looked directly into human beings, he was able to see the truth. He was able to see what was actually present in humans, not just other smaller animals that Aristotle had dissected. One of his biggest discoveries was related to hysteria. So hysteria you know, it's no coincidence that hysteria sounds like hysterectomy because their initial theory was that hysteria was women who were going crazy because their uterus was actually just moving around their body. <laughs> that was the theory back then. It's crazy. And yeah, Herophilus was able to dissect women and find that the uterus was not moving anywhere and refute Aristotle's original theory of that. So he was able to make a lot of landmark discoveries by finally looking 
looking into humans themselves. So was Herophilus then like a noble at this time? Because it sounds like dissection of humans was still kind of a taboo subject in Roman history. So how was he exactly able to do that? Yeah, a lot of it was the less strict rules of Alexandria that allowed him to do that. But back then, medicine wasn't really its own entity as much. There were certainly healers, but a lot of things were under the general philosophical term. You know, Aristotle his wasn't considered necessarily like a human physiologist. It was all philosophy, asking why things work and how they work. It was more just a broad umbrella of somebody who seeks why. And Herophilus was more so a philosopher in that regard, with a huge specialization into cadaveric dissection. Okay. So he was kind of the first person to place his organized thoughts down on dissection, essentially. Is that yeah, we, about right? Yeah, we unfortunately lost most of his work because Alexandria burned to the ground a few centuries after him. And because of that, too, there's a lot of controversy with him in that some people that came after him said that he did vivisection, which is dissecting people while they're alive, which even if you're in Alexandria is pretty, pretty messed up yeah. and uh, <laughs> not something cool to do. But that flew around about a lot of dissectionists because they weren't looked kindly upon. It wasn't a good thing, you know, mm -hmm. back then. And even in a lot of religious faiths, the afterlife is the ultimate goal, right? And that can be messed up if somebody is dissected and their parts taken out because that will affect their afterlife, which is what most people cared about. Mm -hmm. It's interesting to hear about the changes in culture from, of course, thousands of years ago to now, and that dissection isn't a noble thing. It's really kind of something that was illegal at the time, it sounds like. At, at what point was there beginning to be a change? Like, what was the next big jump in um, basically like cadaver theory? Yeah, well, the next big jump was actually a huge step back in that after Herophilus died, cadaver dissection pretty much died for centuries. And it was ironically one of his pupils who founded the school of empiricism, which is more so direct study of patient outcomes. So if I give this herb, do they get better? What happens to them, etc.? They weren't really keen on looking into why things were happening. They just wanted to know what works and what doesn't work. So anatomy to them was superfluous. They, did, they didn't really care about finding the why, finding the what's. They just wanted to know, does this work? After Herophilus died, they took over in the ideologies there. And unfortunately, cadaver dissection fell to the wayside. And without Alexandria going away too, much of his work was lost. And also a lot of the rules that forbid cadaver dissection spread throughout. So nobody could touch a cadaver. And this was further perpetuated with the rise of Catholicism and Christianity in the late Roman Empire. And then that continued for, for centuries. Wow. Okay. So there was basically a period where we didn't have this foundation of anatomy to direct what we were doing to patients. It was do some bloodletting. If it works for them, then let's keep doing it. There was no real theory behind why we were doing it. Yeah. And you can see how that worked out for them. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they did yeah. bloodletting and other things that did not work so well. So was there like a, a figure then that started a change towards dissections or starting to repopularize the idea of it? Yeah. So and that would that wouldn't come for a long time. So that would come around the 15th and 16th century. But in that interim, what happened was animal dissection took over. And the most prominent figure who, who made that the standard was Galen. And Galen is one of the best characters of 
medical history of all time. <laughs> I don't know if that's was, a good thing or bad thing to have a title of. <laughs> a little bit of both. He was very narcissistic. He was just such a character. He used to grab a group of his friends. They would have some animal to dissect. They'd go around town saying, I bet you can't prove me wrong. I bet you can't find this structure. I bet you can't do this dissection. And it was really a showmanship style anatomical dissection. And they did that to increase his reputation throughout Rome, among many other things. And when he talks about seeing patients, it's fascinating because it wasn't like we do now. We ask how you're doing and determine a diagnosis, determine a treatment. It was more almost like Sherlock. He was like, oh, I see you have this rash. I bet you've been having a cough for two months. And they're like, wow, how did you know that? You're so brilliant. You're the best ever. And he was like, yes, that is correct. I am the best ever. <laughs> that's what drove his patient interaction was the pride of it all. Pretty much, pretty much. And that's what drove a lot of his anatomic dissection too. He was very proud of his work and he was great. Don't get me wrong. He, he certainly had room to brag. The man wrote like 500 treatises, which covered a huge amount of anatomy. I mean, an amazing amount of productivity. But amongst those treatises too, he was not kind and he was quite narcissistic. In fact, one of those treatises was literally on Lycus's ignorance of anatomy and Lycus was one of his counterparts. So he he wrote an entire treatise how about how ignorant his counterpart was. Oh my gosh. Well, I see where we get some of the personalities of medicine. <laughs> it's been around for a <laughs> while, huh? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just to clarify, everything he's writing about, though, this was all on animals. So mm -hmm. there was still no human dissection really to pull from at this point, besides maybe Correct. some Barophilus. Yeah, he had two encounters where he found human remains. But this was, you know, like some bones that had washed up on shore and some bones that were being picked away by scavengers. They weren't your traditional human dissection where things are untouched and unmodified. Most of his study was on monkeys because of their likeness to humans. Okay. And so most of it was pretty accurate. And in fact, if you read some of his dissection treatises, you could even follow it. I mean, it's it's like this muscle, this muscle. I know all these structures. But every now and then, there's something that just doesn't exist in humans. <laughs> and that's where the problem was. The problem was he had quite a few of those. And People looked to his works because they were so great as the standard. This is what anatomy was. But because of that, and because they were never looking in humans, they were erroneously thinking that this is how anatomy and physiology worked. Were surgeries happening at this time? Good question. Yeah, no, surgeries were definitely happening at this time. And he actually had a lot of surgical experience. So a lot of his early training was with gladiators, and they obviously have a ton of surgical issues. Um, he talks about draining abscesses. And his MSK stuff in particular is, is very accurate in that regard. And he talks about, well, if you sever this muscle, you're going to have this issue. You're not going to be able to do this movement because this muscle does this, which was really important back then because if a gladiator got cut or their muscle was severed, or if he had to surgically go in and drain an abscess somewhere, he could say, okay, you're probably not going to be able to do this if I do this surgery. So it was actually very helpful. And, and he was quite skilled in that regard. So at what point then did they start to realize that, oh, this animal anatomy isn't exactly one-to-one -to, -one to a human? The answer is way too late. Um, <laughs> so even though human dissection became somewhat legal around the 12th and 13th century, 
it still took centuries for people to realize that. And a lot of that was because the pedestal that they put Galen's work on. When human dissection became legal, the general setup was that you would have an anatomy instructor. They would be sitting at some lectern and talking about Galen's work. They would be reading it basically verbatim saying, this is the anatomy. They wouldn't even touch the cadaver. They wouldn't even look at the cadaver. And a surgeon who was typically a barber back then would be the one cutting the cadaver. But the thing is, Galen's work was the standard. It wasn't trying to determine what was in the human cadaver. It was trying to understand Galen's work. And the cadaver was just a way to understand Galen. When in medical practice, we should really care more what's in the human. So if they encountered something, maybe that wasn't one-to-one to Galen's work. It was probably more of a... Uh thought on, oh, this patient isn't exactly, you know, anatomically correct rather than Galen being incorrect. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they were they were blaming the cadaver then in that instance because Galen was always right. And in fact, there's one amazing circumstance of an anatomist who went against Galen. He said, you know, maybe this isn't accurate. And his name was Servetus. And then they burned him alive with his treatises. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Jeez. Yeah, so... That's the kind of standard that they held Galen to. He was the anatomical standard. So I know you said that at some point um, they were able to do human dissections, like you're talking about with the professor reading off the book. How did that um, like cultural change occur? Or was it just gradual over time? Well, a lot of it was in regard to religious ideals. And some of it was whether or not the Pope would allow it and some other rules regarding different countries like France and England around the time. So a lot of whether or not it was okay to perform human dissection boiled down to those laws. And I believe it was France who was first allowing it in around the 12th century. Okay, I see. And it wasn't like it is now where it's medical schools and you just have medical students. It was almost like a show. People who weren't even involved in medicine would come watch an anatomic dissection because they were pretty infrequent at that point too. You know, you only get to see one every few months and it was kind of an interesting thing. Okay. So it was pretty closely tied, it sounds like, to religion and morality. And as a result, it was, you know, a little slow going to get to that point. And even when it did get to that point, it wasn't fully educational. Mm -hmm. Correct. Okay. So was there any person that called out Galen's teachings that wasn't burned at the stake? (laughs) Yeah, so eventually there was one who survived, and his name was Andreas Vesalius, and he came around the 16th century, and he was just an all-around cool guy, and in his anatomic discoveries, he started to look in the cadavers, which is what we should be doing, and he said, hey, this isn't how Galen wrote it to be, and I'm sure his professors were like, no, no, don't worry about that, the cadaver's wrong, and he kept seeing that. And eventually he got some room of his own and he was able to start teaching anatomic dissection by himself. And pretty much right off the bat, he moves the surgeon away and says, I'm going to be the one doing the dissection. And he still utilizes Galen's work somewhat, but he brought students to the cadaver, which is really the ultimate goal is understanding the anatomy and a human perspective. And he wrote his magnum opus, which was De Humani Corporis Fabrica, which was an amazing work that basically went through all of Galen's errors and had wonderful illustrations of 
his anatomic discoveries. So were um, anatomists like him during his day, were they still functioning as doctors or were those two roles separate? They were they were fairly separate. The dissection still incorporated a lot of medical schools and teachings that way. And, and it depended on the provider, too, because some of them could practice medicine. But a lot of times they, they focus mainly on teaching. OK, so were they still tied to medical schools then or were there kind of like medical schools and anatomy teachings and then eventually they came together? They were still tied to medical schools, almost okay. like a professorship. So he, Andres Vesalius, worked at the University of Padua in France. OK, gotcha. So I know we talked about on the last podcast episode, um, some doctors or some people got their living from robbing graves to bring cadavers to labs. So how did the process of acquiring a cadaver once cadaver dissection became legalized and started growing in medical schools? How were they able to get people to donate their bodies, if that was even a thing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... I mentioned around the 12th century, it started to become legal, but legal meant that it was a criminal usually. So when people committed heinous crimes, they also got a posthumous sentence to go to the cadaver lab, which was was regarded terribly. That was uh, uh, almost worse than the death penalty itself. And even Andreas Vesalius in the 16th century was known to have taken some cadavers from graves in some grave robbing instances. But it wasn't terribly common around that time. The demand for cadavers wasn't incredibly high. But throughout the end of the 16th centuries into the 17th and 18th centuries, the number of medical schools that were in Europe just shot up. There were a bunch of private medical schools springing up to secure tuition payments. And with that, they needed cadavers. And they needed cadavers to teach their medical students. So as the demand shot up, people started doing some drastic things and the you know one of one of the other fascinating narratives in medicine is the history of the resurrectionists or the sack em up men or the uh, body snatchers that would dig up people's graves and use them and, and take them to the cadaver lab and they earned quite a bit of money for that some were even accounted to make around $100,000 in just one season wow. and by the way if you're wondering What's the best season to rob graves? It's the winter time because the temperature preserves the bodies. So it's... come winter time, medical schools would would hire a bunch of body snatchers to secure a bunch of cadavers. And like during what years was this happening? This primarily happened around the 18th century and into the 19th century. And that has to do with a lot of the laws surrounding cadaver dissection. So as I said, it was mostly criminals. And around the 16th and 17th centuries, it was very common for somebody to be hung. And then after they were hung, they would basically be taken to the cadaver lab for dissection. And they got that double sentence, which was seen as, as this horrific capital punishment. In the 18th century, in the middle of the 18th century, they then passed the Anatomy Act and tried to supply more cadavers. And they even talked about incorporating prostitutes and some other laws they even increased the laws that would make somebody be hung for their crime in an, in an attempt to supply wow. more cadavers. Yeah, these they got pretty drastic. But it was a terrible problem at the time. Medical schools needed cadavers to study, and people were going to exceptional lengths. And 
one of the most notable cases is when people even killed over cadavers. Jeez. It's it's so interesting to hear the more I talk to you about the history of medicine, because we like to think that doctors are such distinguished individuals and always have been. But really, there is a dirty, dirty background to medical history. And, you know, this just further even shows that it's it's crazy where we've gotten to today. And I'm thankful for the number of uh, advancements and laws and morality that has finally <laughs> been brought into medicine. Yeah, and I think that's why it's all the more important to not forget our roots so we don't make the same mistakes over again. Right. And so I can imagine at that time with what you're sounding like bringing in, quote, undesirables to the anatomy lab to dissect that uh, the medical students and those learning probably weren't respecting them in the same way that we did today. Oh, not at all. And there were even accounts, I remember reading one account where they pranked one of their classmates by tying a bunch of human entrails to their bicycles. So when they were started riding a bike, the human entrails dragged behind them. They were the antithesis of what it is today in which we're, we are very respectful. And we, you know, at my medical school even wrote notes, to the families to thank them so much for the gift yeah. that they gave us. When did that start to change? That's a little tougher to answer because the transition to a more humanistic practice is a lot more subliminal. It's a lot more reading between the lines of historical works. If I had to guess, it would really be these last hundred years that we've made a huge transition. And in medicine overall, too, I think we've made a similar transition. We have the Gold Humanism Society now and a lot of other humanistic proponents that are doing a phenomenal job. Right. At any point during history, was the like quality of education that the Cadaver Lab provided, was that ever called into question? I know there's discussions hmm. today, but was there anything throughout history that called upon that? Not too much, at least not that I saw, because that's pretty much all they had. When you look at today, we have flashcards. I don't know about you, but I used Anki constantly yep. <laughs> in medical school. <laughs> so we have flashcards, we have textbooks, we have wonderful drawings, we have even virtual reality now. I mean, people are doing human dissection in a VR setting with these, these fancy digital models. And it really hasn't been until recently that people have started to argue that these methods are actually better than the cadavers themselves. Right. And so as a neutral viewpoint on this, like I understand where they're coming from with that, because the way I view it is we've had all these thousands of years of dissection. It's like, how much is there really to the human body? Is there anything more to learn? Like, what's the difference between hands on a cadaver versus going through a digital pro section or something like that. So what are your thoughts on that? I know that's a little more opinion based, but I'm curious. There, I think there's merits to both sides. And where I actually end up is somewhere in the middle. So I remember going through anatomy lab. I remember searching for hours on end in the pelvic floor and trying to find these tiny little nerves that still haunt me to this day that took forever to dissect because when you're in a cadaver, everything's kind of grayish because of all the formaldehyde and preservatives and all that stuff. And it gets exceedingly difficult. And when you start to sacrifice the educational aspect for the procedural aspect of it, I do think that's where cadaver lab suffers. But on the other hand, I think if you look at history, the last time that we ditched cadaver dissection for other methods, i.e. when we stopped doing human dissection and just resorted to Galen's works because we thought they were 100% accurate. We made a terrible mistake for thousands of years. And most people will say, well, 
you know, this is the 21st century. We definitely have it right this time. But when I looked to see when the last anatomic discovery was, I had to keep looking because they kept finding new things. Hmm. So the last time I looked was when I finished the, the draft of the manuscript, which was about, about a year ago now. And the publication hadn't even been out. It was an EPUB ahead of publication wow. where they found a new anatomic structure. So we're still finding them. And I think there's a lot of hubris to us saying that all of our flashcards, all of our models are 100% correct. So we should abandon the cadaver lab. I think there's merit to looking directly for yourself in the human body, because that's where we care about the right answer. We want to best understand the human body. So we should, at the very least, look to that in some of our courses. Yeah. I also think about, too, like the difference between a dissection and a prosection and what's the the pros and cons to both, because I know some medical schools have just stopped doing dissections and still keep the cadaver lab, but have prosections all cleaned and ready. Do you think that there's anything of merit that a dissection provides versus a prosection? Yeah, I, I think similarly, if the procedural time takes an excessive amount of time, I think there is a lot lost there. So I think prosections can be especially helpful in that regard. But, you know, when it's that's not the case, and I especially remember dissecting the thorax being something that doesn't take a lot of time and you can really appreciate the spatial relationships between different structures as you're going down and as you're dissecting. So I think there is benefit to dissection itself, but I also think there's a middle ground. Again, when you're taking away from education, uh, that's when prosection and some other methods can be very helpful. Yeah. I also think about too, like during a dissection, just the greatest way of learning is to have all different modalities possible, like not just hearing, not just teaching, but also experiencing can just engrave engrave that knowledge even more so in your mind than anything else. And I dissection, you're pouring over this information for hours on end. And it's like, really, what more are you going to, uh, or what else can you do that will equal that magnitude of focus on an object? And like, calling back to people of the olden days, dissection, they think was the most important experience to medical education. Um, so there is definitely merit there in pouring over this, uh, this material on hours on end and using your hands and getting to look for things. It, it helps you. I think it helps you uh, learn that material more. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And I mean, it's not like the Krebs cycle here. We're talking about human anatomy that I use in clinical practice a lot. It's definitely important to know. Um, so I, I think there's a, a ton of merit to that. And I, I also think about too, there's a bit of a hidden curriculum too, to the dissection lab itself. And that's tying it back to the humanity of it all. Um, as we continue throughout the years, as our M1s and M2s at UC will uh, continue dissecting their cadavers, it becomes less and less uh the image of what you envision a cadaver to look like as you're uh, pouring through each layer of it. And it's really a time, I think, to be focused and reflective of yourself and maintaining the humanity within yourself and within the cadaver. Um, like that's something that it takes work to do, but it's an important thing not to forget because as we see in our clinical practice, um, it's easy for us to forget that humanity in the own patients that are talking to and that we're treating. And I feel like that's the hidden curriculum there too, of just like, it's a test of your humanity of 
maintaining that respect and dignity for others. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think that juxtaposition from the historical lack of humanity and horrible things that they did and grave robbing that they did to nowadays where we're very respectful. We thank the families. We have a, a ceremony typically for cadaver donations is so important. And when you extend that to clinical practice, I mean, if we just had a course that taught students how to read CT scans and read MRIs, that really takes them away from the actual patient. If you treat a clinician to diagnose and treat CT scans, they're going to treat CT scans. But if you teach them to understand and appreciate a cadaver, they're hopefully more focused on the human being when they see them clinically. Right. I agree. And so my personal take, honestly, is that I I don't think that dissections should go away, but I almost feel like maybe the future looking forward is with the many different modalities of imaging and how important they are to our clinical practice, tying in maybe an imaging with our dissections. You know, you get an MRI of the brain and then it's like, okay, now try and find that in the dissection. Like, I think that could be a way to help tie in even further our advances in technology with respecting uh, historical practice that I think is still relevant. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's about incorporating and not abandoning. Exactly. All right. Well, Brian, thank you once again for providing your incredible historical perspective on all of this. Hopefully everyone learned a little bit more about uh, the cadaver lab, the importance of it, and uh, how sometimes history can repeat itself. It's not just a saying. So Brian, thank you so much again. Thanks for having me. All right. Bye-bye.